0: And our New Testament lesson comes from John's Gospel. We read from chapter 12, beginning at verse 20 and continuing through verse 33. Again, listen for the Word of God. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, a question. How many of you enjoy going to the movies? Anybody? Yeah, I'm a big movie fan. Um, I'm by myself these days, so I tend to go in the afternoons. My day off is Friday, and so I go to matinees. Um, So as to avoid the weekend crowds, uh, all that kind of thing, maybe some of you all do that as well. The problem I have is I have this golden retriever, Millie, and if it's a sunny day, I swear this is the truth. If I'm leaving the house without her, she gives me those golden retriever eyes. And I swear she says, really? You're going without me? So mostly I wait for rainy afternoons. But still, I I get to go see movies. Now here's the thing, I will admit, I am first of all of a certain generation, a certain age, and second of all, a certain level of geekiness, nerdhood, I'm not sure what you want to call it, Um, but maybe you've noticed about every other movie that comes out these days is based on a comic book superhero right? Or group thereof. I grew up with all those. So I made a list. Um, After doing it off the top of my head, Kim and I have spoken in between services, and the list is still not entirely complete, but i found myself between services thinking of things I'd left off. X-Men, Avengers, Wolverine, Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, -Man, Ant-Man, Spider-Man. We're um, exhausting the insect world, I think. Guardians of the Galaxy, Doctor Strange, Fantastic Four, and most recently, The Black Panther, which if I remember correctly, about a week ago, I saw a story in the newspaper that, since that's the most recent one and very major, um, surpassed $1 billion in ticket sales worldwide. Amazing. Now, that's a dozen I counted, and I haven't named them all, and there are multiples of different ones of those, so we're into probably two dozen, roughly, movies altogether over the past few years. So, one of the fun, th- I happen to like those, I enjoy them, as I say, I grew up with those comic books, and if I or my mother had thought to save the comic books we had, uh, I had when I was a kid, a teenager, my retirement would be much more secure than it is today, but be that as it may. One of the fun things for me about going to those movies is that this is what's known as the Marvel universe, it's the Marvel comic books, is that Stan Lee at some point shows up in every one of them. Stan Lee was the head of Marvel comic books in one form or another, not sure of his title, but made up a lot of these titles and superheroes and wrote a lot of the original comics and so on and so forth. And in every one of those movies, sooner or later, you'll see this older guy, white-haired mustache who makes a comment, a humorous, sarcastic comment about what's going on or the the superhero or something and then walks off. Just a little cameo. This is in a a rich tradition of such things among movie makers. Some of you all will have seen Alfred Hitchcock's or remember Alfred Hitchcock's movies, right? Alfred Hitchcock always showed up near the beginning of all his movies. Um, The Birds... Right, Tippy Hedren at the very beginning of the movie is going into a pet shop and a customer comes out before her, opens the door and she lets him go by, this sort of shorter, round-looking guy, Alfred Hitchcock. Doesn't say anything, just kind of passing through. It's his way of sort of winking at the audience and saying, hope you enjoy it. His, one of his last movies, I think um, it was titled Lifeboat, Um, He was a corpse floating in the River Thames. (laughs) He had a sense of humor about these things. Uh, That's the way it is. These cameos, in part, we get it because that's the way our lives are. Um, We, of course, for ourselves, are center stage, but there are all these people kind of coming and going around us, passers-by on the sidewalk, folks we speak to in stores and so on and so forth, Nobody calling attention to themselves necessarily, just going about their business, about their lives. And and that's the way Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley, others are who do those kinds of things. Just appear and disappear very quickly, no explanation needed, just in and out. See, it's sort of a rule. You can't give characters like that something major to say or do and then just forget about them. It's, it just doesn't happen. It isn't done. If you tried it, the audience or the reader, if it's a book, would spend the rest of the time, their time wondering, well, whatever happened with that character who raised that question? But if John, the gospel writer, I'm through with the movies for this morning, um, if John knew that rule, had ever learned it, he forgot it. In our passage for today, because here he has these Greeks come on stage in the gospel and start this whole new section of his book by asking Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. We'd like to see Jesus. And that's the last we hear of them ever again. That's it. John simply never mentions them again. Philip goes off and gets Andrew, and together they go to Jesus. And for all we know, the Greeks may still be standing there today, or perhaps their descendants, because certainly they wouldn't be around anymore. But still, it's disconcerting. You'd expect John to at least bring them up later on to kind of tie up the matter no matter how briefly, to say something like, and Jesus went out and spoke to the Greeks who came, and they went on their way rejoicing and wondering greatly, saying, what manner of man is this? That sounds like scripture, right? I made it up. You won't find it there. Nothing like it. They're not brought up again. So we sort of squirm in our seats waiting for the other shoe to fall. It makes it hard to pay attention to what Jesus says to Philip and Andrew unless we really concentrate, if we're really thinking about what we're reading, if we're really paying attention. And maybe that's exactly what John wants. You see, this passage, our passage for today, marks a turning point in John's gospel. It brings to an end what has come before and marks the beginning of what is about to happen. Because, and maybe you've thought of this, maybe it occurred to you as you heard the words read, up until now, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, remember in John's gospel, his first miracle, his first sign, as John calls it, is turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, up until when the Pharisees try to capture Jesus, the word has been said, sometimes by Jesus, sometimes by John as he writes his gospel, that Jesus' hour has not yet come. That's what Jesus says to Mary at the wedding feast when she tells him the wine has run out. My hour has not yet come. But now it has. Jesus himself says it. now is the time for God to be glorified, to be made known, to be shown to people by what happens to Jesus in his life. Up till this time, Jesus has shown people what God was like by his preaching, his healing, his teaching, his miracles. Again, those signs, as John Calls them. But now that the word about Jesus has spread beyond the nation of Israel and begun its movement into the Gentile world, to the Greeks, for example, now, as Jesus himself says, the hour has come. The hour for receiving glory, the hour for being lifted up, the hour of the cross. We need to pay careful attention here, because this is that brief moment when the wave has pulled away from the shore all the way and pauses for just a moment before the next wave comes rushing in. Jesus, in this gospel, knows what is about to happen And this is, for him, a moment of reflection and decision. It is a critical moment, a crucial moment, one of those moments when time seems to stand still, when the world seems to hold its breath, when the meaning of all that has been and all that is about to be indeed of life itself seems to hang in the balance. Or as I think John would say, more than seems does hang in the balance. John may well have heard had those Greeks disappear on purpose, to warn us to pay attention, or at least to make us feel uneasy so that we'll prick up our ears a bit as we read and ask ourselves, What on earth is going on here anyway? For in just 10 short verses, from where Jesus begins to speak to Philip and Andrew to where our passage ends this morning, so many things have been packed in, so many threads tied up that if you studied it and meditated on it for a week or more, you'd only begin to unpack all of it. Do that sometime. Take a look at these 10 verses and meditate on them. Pray over them. Gethsemane is there and Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? The meaning of Jesus' life and death. The Greeks come with a very simple request. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And Jesus gives this incredibly dense and rich and layered Answer. Even Jesus' conversation with Pilate about authority and power and who really has it is here. Jesus speaks about his death and about discipleship, and by the way, gives an answer to those Greeks. Jesus says that he came in order that we might see God and know what God is like that God's name might be glorified, as the voice from heaven says, or as Jeremiah put it, so that we all might know God from the least to the greatest, so that we all might be a part of God's new covenant. And Jesus must die so that we might know more of what God is like, so that his name will be glorified, so that we might know how his love for us is so strong that it will stop at nothing, not even death, not even a cross, but go right on so that we might know that for God, no price is too high to pay to bring the world, as John says, as Jesus says in John, the cosmos back to God. And this is how we know it. Because Jesus died, we all, even those of us outside Israel, we all know the height and depth and breadth of God's love for us. And because Jesus died, we have God's law of love written on our hearts, as God promised Jeremiah. We know that we should consider others as highly as we consider ourselves. We don't always do it, but that's not the surprise, really. What's surprising is that we know it at all, and that sometimes, perhaps occasionally in big moments of sudden inspiration, or more often probably in small everyday things, sometimes we actually do it. We give up a little of our own time to volunteer to do a service project for others whom we might not even know. We put aside a purchase we want to make for ourselves in order to give to a cause, to this church, or to some other ministry to which we feel called. In whatever small and perhaps secret ways, we despise in this way our own worldly life and love someone else more. That's what's surprising. And if we aren't always able to do that, as none of us are always, well, that's what forgiveness is for. As God promised Jeremiah, I will forgive their sins and I will no longer remember their wrongdoing. And by the way, that's Jesus' answer to the Greeks as well. Whenever you would seek to do that, you will see me, he says. My servant will be with me where I am. Would you like to see Jesus? This is what he says. Whoever wants to serve me must follow me so that my servant will be with me where I am. Whenever you seek to do this, you will see me. Well... Also, about those Greeks, I don't want to forget them entirely because they didn't really just disappear. You See, they were the people that John was writing his gospel to and for, the Greek church, the Gentiles, those who came after, who hadn't seen Jesus during his lifetime on earth. Perhaps John had even been asked the same question or had heard a similar statement, something like, wouldn't it be nice if we could be with Jesus today just for a little while, or something like, having faith would be so much easier if only we could see Jesus. To which John replies, you have seen him, you have seen him. So it's not so much that the Greeks disappeared exactly. They just couldn't stick around. They had to get back to their own time and place to read the gospel John was writing for them. And they had to be here to come to church today. And I bet you didn't even know that was us John was talking about. In the name of the Father and of the Son,